This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. What always appealed to me about journalism is that sheer curiosity, not, or at least the kind I did, which is not like, I know everything there is to know about this one narrow piece, and thank God those people exist. I was never one of them. Rather, it was, I know something about this. Let me find out more. Let me find out more. Sort of that kind of, there's some good faith involved. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June, hello to you. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) That voice we just heard was the great polymath Kurt Anderson. I know in your interview with him, he simply calls himself a writer. But how would you or could you sum up his body of work? I think polymath is right on the money. He is definitely a writer. I'm not going to argue with his own self-definition, but he has never restricted his way with words purely to the page. He was the host most recently of a public radio show and later podcast, Studio 360, for 20 years. I mean, that's a pretty big job, and he was awesome at it, in part because he brought like a great writer's precision and wit and originality to his intros and his interviews and all the other parts of being a host. Critics hate the new Netflix reboot of the sitcom Full House. It's called Fuller House. But B.J. Novak disagrees. It fits in to the original narrative in a way that is just like the shot of sitcom dopamine that everyone wanted from Full House. The great comedy writer and actor sticks up for a sitcom that gets no respect. That's next in and I remember back in 1999, when his first novel, Turn of the Century, came out, it was set in part at Microsoft, where I worked at the time, and I was just wowed, I guess, that a complete outsider could display such insight into this really peculiar culture. Like, he got some things really, really wrong, but the overall gestalt was absolutely right. So, yes, he's a writer, but he is also the male equivalent of the character created by the cartoonist Nicole Hollander, which was the woman who can do everything more beautifully than you. Like, he can do it all. And you kind of want to hate people like that, but he's a really nice guy, so I don't even resent him for it. You don't even resent him a little bit? A little bit, Just a little? Okay, come on. And also, for our listeners who might not be familiar or might be too young, Mm. like our producer Cameron Drews, (laughs) one of Anderson's great achievements is co-launching and co-editing Spy Magazine, which he calls the James Dean of magazines. But unlike James Dean, Spy Magazine was actually really great. What was it? Well, 
Isaac, before we get to Spy Magazine, I thought you connoisseurs of the method revered James Dean, no? No, no. In fact, uh, there's a lot of pushback to the reverence around James Dean. Elia Kazan writes very negatively about him in his memoir. Marlon Brando disliked him greatly. Uh, uh, He's actually a controversial figure. Well, I cannot wait to read your book to find out more about that. No, Spy Magazine. I was, uh, I'm very old, and I was a huge fan of Spy Magazine. I loved it. As I mentioned in the interview, one of my strongest, happiest memories of the 1980s is of sitting with my housemate, reading Spy, and the two of us just absolutely laughing like crazy people. Um, The magazine's slogan was smart, fun, funny, fearless. I still have a T-shirt that says that, actually. And, you know, that's an irresistible combo. It was a satirical magazine irreverent and poking fun at everything and everybody, but especially the rich and pretentious of New York City. And it was really flattering to the reader. At the time, I was a relatively new arrival in the States, and I really had no idea who these vulgar, misbehaving plutocrats that they kept talking about were. But they kind of became like soap opera characters. It was interesting to see what they got up to, even if I didn't really understand who they were. Were you a spy reader or are you too young? Oh, to be called too young again, June. <laughs> it was still in print when I graduated college in, in 01. It was still around in the 90s. You know, if you were if you were hip, you wanted to be reading Spy Magazine or if you wanted yeah. to pretend you were hip. And I, I, I was <laughs> exactly. somewhere in that nexus. So, yes, I, I absolutely read it. We should also note that Spy Magazine is the origin of the descriptor short-fingered vulgarian for yes. Donald Trump, right? Yes. If you want to go back and read people who had Donald Trump's number from the get-go, you should really look at the Spy Magazine archives, many of which you can just actually Google Spy Magazine in a subject and it will come up. There's even an article from the magazine that's very important to my book because there's a period where there's a big scandal among acting teachers in New York City that the uh, magazine reported on. And uh, its spirit lived on in the late great departed Gawker and I think lives on today in The Baffler. So it's a very influential Mm -hmm. and important magazine, even though it doesn't get talked about that much. But as much as I wish this were a podcast dedicated to the history of (laughs) defunct periodicals, it's actually about the artistic process and the creative process. And one of the reasons why Kurt joined us this week was to talk about his new book, Evil Geniuses. So what's Evil Geniuses? Well, it's a really great book. It's slightly depressing um, because it's essentially about the many, many ways in which the American social contract got smashed into tiny pieces. How the balance between the super rich and the middle class, employers and workers, businesses and customers was sent completely out of whack. And he traces that process, which started with like fringe ideas expressed in obscure journals or memos distributed to very small groups, how those ideas eventually became incredibly influential. And it's a really convincing explanation for why American political ideas are so much more extreme and individualistic than those of other developed countries. Great. Well, I can't wait to listen to this conversation, but we should also mention that this week there's a little bonus for our Slate Plus listeners who get to hear you and Kurt talk about some formative works of art that helped shape his sensibility. If you don't subscribe to Slate Plus, you can get two weeks for free right now by going to slate.com slash working plus. Okay, now on with the show.
What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. If a stranger asked, what do you do for a living? What would you say? Uh, I would say I'm a writer. Even when I was the host of a radio show and podcast for 20 years, mm. and I've had writer on my passport, even when I was an editor of magazines and things, it's always seemed the correct thing and the thing that nobody could fire me from and the thing <laughs> I would keep doing, you know? So that's what I am. I mean, I, I'm not going to argue with you because you're definitely a writer. But as you just mentioned, you've done a ton of other stuff too. You've been a writer for a magazine. You've written nonfiction books. You've written novels. You edited New York Magazine. You co-launched one of the kind of the great magazines, you know, in terms of its reputation, Spy Magazine. You started the web magazine Inside during the dot-com boom. You were the host of Studio 360 for 20 years. You launched a newsletter before launching a newsletter was something everyone did. Have you always been kind of conscious of wanting to mix things up, to not stay in your lane? I certainly have not stayed in a lane. And I've also, you know, worked in TV and written screenplays and done little stage things. So, yeah, I have done a lot of stuff. Um, and it wasn't like I started out saying, I want to do so many things. I am a multidisciplinary person at all. But... As things came up and opportunities arose and people I knew said, hey, you want to do this? Or have you ever thought about doing this? Or I said, sure. I mean, they were always adjacent things to what I thought I knew how to do or had done or kind of knew how to do. Um, like doing the radio show. They came to me out of the blue and said, hey, you know, we think you'd, we have this new show in mind, uh, this cultural show, and we think you'd be a good host. And I said, well, if you're the experts, <laughs> you're the professionals, maybe. Um, as far as when I, I didn't start writing novels until, well, I didn't start writing novels for publication until I was uh, in my 40, 44 years old. And that, that, however, was something that even as a child, I thought uh, that would be the brass ring, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But I never, I never uh, thought of myself as somebody who would leap from this to this and try to do lots of different things. 
you have a new book out, Evil Geniuses, which we'll, we will talk about very soon. Um, so you were writing that while you were hosting Studio 360. As I was researching, I was reminded that when you were editing or co-editing Spy, you were still writing your Time magazine column about architecture. Are you a workaholic? Like, is it just that you don't say no? Do you like being busy? Why do you do so much? I, I, I certainly don't think of myself as a workaholic. I do work, however, and it's like, and it was always, certainly when I was starting out, like, oh, I can do both of these things? Well, who? let me do both. I mean, I am ambitious. Mm. I, you know, I really liked writing about design and being the architecture critic of Time Magazine. So, and it wasn't, it was a piece every few weeks. So why quit that while I was doing Spy? Also, Spy Magazine was such an all-consuming exhausting, scary, high-stakes, crazy adventure, it was nice to have this other thing that wasn't that, that was just this dependable thing I liked doing and was a nice paycheck and uh, <laughs> and about where I could just say, basically, write about buildings and things that I liked and why I liked them rather than what Spy was, <laughs> essentially uh, overseeing a staff of people finding out things they hate and figure out why <laughs> they should be hated. So there was that. So you have a new book out. It's called Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America. I loved it, by the way. Thank you. I have several questions about it, but I would love for you to begin by describing the book. How do you see it? It began as my attempt to make up for lost time for all of the attention I didn't pay to the transformation of the American economic system during the 1980s and 90s uh, as I was doing fine in that economic system. So, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't a Republican. I wasn't a right winger. I was a good, you know, Gary Hart, Bill Clinton liberal. Um, then in this century, as the obvious dysfunction, inequality, insecurity, other people not doing fine, so tens of millions, most Americans not doing fine, I, I'd never, I had my hunches and I knew the headlines, but I'd never really gone into it deeply to know what happened? How did this happen? And then I wrote this other book, Fantasyland, which was about how America, the subtitle of it is How America Went Haywire. Uh, in terms of magical thinking and delusion and crazy conspiracy theories and all of this stuff leading up to and embodied by Donald Trump. But what I realized is that there was this other thing, this about politics and economics and technology that wasn't just in the American character or in the American bloodstream that weirdly changed when I was 25 years old. Mm. So it is about how a confederacy of the rich and the ideological right, economically right, and, and big business set about changing the American social compact and contract, rewriting it, uh, ending the New Deal, which, which, which with all of its sort of social democratic ideas and regulations and norms had been the way America was for 45 years. And, and they decided to change it and very in short order, did through incredible strategic brilliance and never let go. And, and that's still the system we live in. And, and that's, it's, that's what it's about. It's also about various cultural changes that happened at the same time 
that aided and abetted that political economic shift of of celebrating the good old days. Yeah. And then I, this theory of mine that I stuck into this unified theory of everything, uh, of how how little so many parts of the culture have changed over the last 20 or 30 years, right. and how that has sort of reinforced the sense among many, many Americans that is useful to these right-wing hegemons uh, that nothing can really ever change. Big change doesn't really happen. Stuff looks like it always has. People dress more or less the way they always have. Yeah. Everything's the same, and what are you going to do about it? Yeah, technology is new, but otherwise, meh, it's all the same, so don't worry about it. Keep listening to your old music and keep going into YouTube and watching old shows, and just, it'll be fine. Pay no attention. I mean this in a very positive way, but there were many times during the book where I could kind of picture you, you know, with the pins and the string and the <laughs> yes. board, you know, like connecting these things. And there's always Milton Friedman or Ronald Reagan often at the center of it all. Yeah, I know. Um, like a scene from Homeland where Carrie yeah, exactly. is doing nuts, right? You, you were totally Carrie. But I was curious, how did you bring it all together? I mean, did you, because this is an incredible work of research and synthesis, which again can seem like a, a bad word, but not when you do it very well. Um, how did you bring your, your pins and string together to make this book? Uh, there was no, by the way, literal pins or string or, <laughs> or post-it notes Darn. or maps or photos or all those things. Ugh. I mean, I, I had been noodling, thinking, not thinking, oh, I'm going to write a book about this someday, but... <laughs> But I quote some pieces I'd written 15 years ago and 10 years ago at the beginning of the book, just proving that I, you know, I, I wasn't a complicit neoliberal useful idiot forever. I've, I've been making this transition for a while. So I basically, I spent 2018 just immersed in research in a sort of self-guided MA program, essentially, mm -hmm. in all of these different subjects I knew very little about. And then said to myself, okay, and then you have this year, calendar year to do it, and then you better write it in 2019, turn it into the beginning of 2020 so it can come out hmm. after the, 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 the Democratic primaries, but before the election, and here we are. I mean, it was, a, yeah. it was a crazy kind of, you know, pool shot thing that had to happen just right, but happily, it, it all worked out. And so I did intense research, not... It, I, I, it wasn't like, here's the book I'm going to write, here are the characters, and I have to find out stuff about them. I didn't know. Yeah. I, I just yeah. plunged in, and as one does, or as I do anyway, like, oh, I read this book, and then that raised all these other questions and brought up all these other theories and people and stuff I didn't know about. So that sent me to more books, and, and that's what I did for a year. It was great. It, it really was <laughs> like some kind of – I never went to graduate school, so it was like a, yeah. a year or two of graduate school. And then when I was writing it, you know, I wouldn't just – type away every day and be done. I, I, the other days and long and weeks of research would intervene as I came across something I didn't really understand well enough. Um, so, but, but truly, I, I had never written a big nonfiction book before Fantasyland and this one. It had been novels and then other things. So I feel like, okay, I, uh, <laughs> I had done it once with Fantasyland and that worked out okay. So I thought, oh, I can do it in a more deliberative way now. And it worked yeah. out. You know, I, I'm sorry to say I haven't yet read Fantasyland, but one of the things that struck me with Evil Geniuses was you're kind of acknowledging that you weren't an expert on everything that you were talking about, at least going into it. You know, there was a humility about your, you know, expressing surprise at some of the things that you learned over the course of your research. Was that different in this particular book? Did that feel different? 
if you get around to reading Fantasyland, you'll see I did a similar thing and talked about my own experience with, or lack of it, with religion and cults and mm -hmm. belief in the woo-woo in my own life. Um, but not as much. This has more memoirish aspects, partly because I really wasn't guilty of <laughs> too much magical thinking or crazy delusional thinking or anything that I had to sort of apologize for. Whereas this, I did, again, I didn't begin this book, Evil Geniuses, with thinking like, oh my God, mea culpa, why wasn't <laughs> I a lefty earlier? But as I saw what had happened and and... You know, saw, so, oh, this happened in 1982. What was I doing in 1982? This happened in 1988. What was I doing in 1988? Mm -hmm. How oblivious or uh, was I to <laughs> to how other people weren't doing so well? All that. So mm -hmm. that appears in the book more. Uh, but also I feel, I guess, because I'm not young and because I have, you know, I was on the radio for 20 years pretending all kinds of expertise <laughs> and authoritativeness about a million things that I do <laughs> almost nothing about, I felt willing and free to admit that. You know, half of my life for the last 30 years has been being a journalist and half has been writing fiction and TV and stuff. Mm. What always appealed to me about journalism is that sheer curiosity, not, or at least the kind I did, which is not like, I know everything there is to know about this one narrow piece and thank God those people exist. I was never one of them. Rather, it was, I know something about this. Let me find out more. Let me find out more. Sort of that kind of general curiosity. And so, you know, I think admitting that to the degree it's true is good because candor is good. But I also think maybe it has the secondary effect of allowing people, readers, to think like th that I came about my understandings of these things in a way that they can relate to. Because maybe, because mm -hmm. I don't expect everybody who reads this book to begin or to or to finish agreeing with everything I say or everything I've discovered. Mm -hmm. But if they have a sense, and I deliver the sense in the course of the prose, of of my own, I hate to use the word, journey toward <laughs> where, where I came out, then they'll, they'll understand that there's some good faith involved, that I'm not just one more ideologue with my point of view that I began with, typed up, and delivered to them, you know? Yeah. We'll be back with more of June Thomas's conversation with Kurt Anderson after this. One of the things we'd love to do with this show is help solve your creative problems. Whether it's a specific challenge about your work or a big question about inspiration and discipline, send them to us at workingatslate.com. If and when we can, we'll put those questions to our guests. Welcome back to Working. Now let's return to June's conversation with Kurt Anderson. One of the themes of the book, as you've mentioned, is that America is addicted to nostalgia, which can be actually quite harmful. And one of the things that I personally am most nostalgic about is Spy Magazine. I have a very clear memory, like one of the one of my happiest memories of that era is of being in the house that I lived in in D.C., sitting with my roommate and reading Spy. We loved it so much that we had two subscriptions so wow. we could sit like side by side and read it together and laugh hysterically. 
Spy is one of those magazines that's like, if it was still publishing, like it would be like the New Republic, like it would be a kind of a zombie and we would, but the fact that it kind of died young, admittedly after you had left it, it it kind of has this glorious uh, reputation and this, you know, left us just with happy memories. Yeah, the James Um, Dean of magazines, really. Exactly, exactly. What did you learn from your experience at Spy? Big question. Oh gosh, so much. I was never a, or didn't think of myself as much of a risk taker before mm-hmm. I did that. I took risks, but I was always careful enough not to, you know, take too many drugs or whatever <laughs> risks I took, you know, and, and, uh-huh. and got into a good college and all that. So, yeah. so like saying, by God, we're just going to do it and roll the dice and start this weird eccentric magazine that lots of people would hate and lots of powerful people would hate. Screw it. We'll do it. And, and it worked. <laughs> so I learned that, well, it worked the first time. Let's keep taking risks. And back to your earlier question, well, I'm middle-aged now. I'm 44. And I've never written a novel, but or I've never finished and published a novel. Mm-hmm. But now, let me try it. So, mm-hmm. so I would say in addition to just the, oh, risk can work out, I learned that if we create something, and, and this has been important for my own professional life, if we want to read or watch or listen or make something that doesn't exist for ourselves, that's kind of step one. I, I always thought I, after Spy, like, yeah, it might, it might be interesting to be like a television exec, network television executive, but not really because most of the stuff you're making is not for you. And, I, yeah. I, you know, maybe you can get away with doing that and be successful, and people are, but yeah. like, nah, just... I feel like my creative life, my professional life is is that, is making stuff that I want, that I would yeah. want, that doesn't really exist. And let me see if I can do it. Yeah. I, I was just paging through Spy the Funny Years, which is a, a more recent book that kind of looks back at the magazine. And I saw that in your 1985, I think, pre-launch vision of the magazine, you wrote the following sentence. Uh-oh. <laughs> the magazine will be almost thoroughly irreverent, often funny and studied with inside information, which that's a very good description of how it turned out. Uh, but it made me wonder, like, could Spy have been launched or even have existed in 2020? I mean, again, just flipping through just randomly. One of the things I saw was like some very light mocking of Andrea Dworkin and, and that I think would be out of bounds today. Like there are th- right. more things now that are out of bounds. Can you have a thoroughly irreverent magazine when some people or groups or positions are out of bounds or in the age of social media? Yeah. One of the strokes of luck of Spy was our timing. You know, we started a gener- just a generation after the late 60s. So that had sort of seeped through the culture, the irreverence, mm-hmm. anti-establishment, and become kind of part of the establishment take. So yeah. that was good for us. The fact that we did it just before there was an internet, crucial. Yeah. And, and the people liked it and cared about it. And our 200, then 300,000 subscribers really loved us, most of them. The, <laughs> the reason that was possible is because there was no internet, because there were yeah. just a few channels. And by channels, I mean magazines, book publishers, newspapers, television networks, and so on. So suddenly doing this thing that none of them were doing, this this month after month of Funny journalism. Our, our, our motto was smart, fun, funny, fearless. Yes. It got attention. And if we did it well, we would be successful. And we were. So this was, we were kind of the only game in town for a certain yeah. kind of 
manic, gleeful, connecting the dots, irony thing mm -hmm. uh, that that just wasn't available. And now it's available, you know, in every third tweet, right? So that enabled us to be successful then. And now, as you say, well, Gawker, a kind of a, a descendant, I suppose, mm -hmm. of Spy, was mm -hmm. put out of business because it just pissed off powerful people, as we did back then, who couldn't put us out of business the way they could uh, Gawker. But the social media thing and, and being satirical, which is always going to step toward and occasionally over lines of appropriateness or mm -hmm. offensiveness or whatever, it's just gonna, that's the nature yeah. of satire and comedy, mm -hmm. uh, would be trickier and harder today because yeah. it's a monthly magazine. If somebody thinks, oh, well, that's in poor taste or that's too mean, Eh, what are you going to do about it? You know, I mean, you're not going to be able to to, to to rile up a mob of offended people <laughs> to take us down back yeah. in 1991, you know? Yeah. Well, after Spy, you launched an online magazine uh, inside during the dot-com bubble. You were a boss and an entrepreneur. Like, I, I know. I confess, I don't remember, like, I remember when it happened, but I don't really, yeah. like, unlike Spy, where I have this picture of myself reading it, I don't have that equivalent for inside. Um, but why did you even want to do that? I mean, it's funny how my various things, all these things I do kind of intersect and feed mm -hmm. each other. In my first novel, Turn of the Century, <laughs> I had actually written about a thing like Inside, which covered the media and journalism and show business and stuff, and, but on the internet, which, yeah. which, you know, kids, in 1999, <laughs> that was a new thing. Yeah. And so I had kind of created the fictional version of it. And then my friend, Michael Hirshhorn, who had worked with me at New York Magazine, came and said, hey, why don't we, why don't we do this? I said, oh, that's interesting. And, and it was 1999. And, and there was lots of people who, who were willing to give the two of us and our other associates plenty of money to do this thing. And so why not? I, I, I'd publish a novel. I figured I would return to that, which I did. But like, no, let's, let's do this. The other thing that I, here, here, as I'm telling you this story, I remember exactly why I did it. <laughs> the band metaphor. I felt like uh -huh. before rock and roll goes away, the dot-com web internet being rock and roll, mm -hmm. you know, and it wasn't obviously going to go away. But I thought 1999, it seemed like, wow, this has been happening for five years, it was like 1969, yeah. and we should let's get in on it. That's yeah, what I felt. Yeah. I felt like, oh, yeah. this is this is our last chance. Let's let's have a go at this. Yeah. Uh, so that was a big part of it. Just like, oh wow, this is a big, cool, interesting, culturally transformative thing. Uh, let me in for a while. So that's <laughs> that's why we did it. Um, you have interviewed a lot of writers over the years for Studio 360. Has that affected the way you prepare to be interviewed? I'm sure it's affected how I do, but not consciously of, okay, now I'm going to go talk to June and here's, <laughs> here's the attitude I need to uh, put on. I mean, uh, I'd never really done interviews particularly before mm -hmm. I did, that, did the radio show. And, and I realized that so much of it, in addition to being curious, which is journalism, and, you know, shutting up some of the time and all that, I realized creating a rapport is crucially important if you're the interviewer. And I realized, I later thought, oh, it's like a first date where you know there's only going to be one date. Yes, yes. Right? And, yeah. and that's kind of great 
frankly, yeah. and more yeah. dates should be like that probably, but they yeah. can't be. But but that, so how are you going to make this person like and get me and understand me and 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 more importantly convey to the interviewee that there's that rapport. So I suppose that's part of the unconscious thing I I do with interviews now is uh, play ball in that rapport creating way. The other thing, I I guess, as an interviewer of hundreds of people and movie stars and directors and authors and musicians and the rest, Mm -hmm. is whenever you get, because you've done your research, like the same thing, like, oh yeah, she said that eight times in the last three weeks. Let's cut that out when we in post-production. So I guess I, I... I'm willing to say the same thing because, of course, uh-huh. I'm here selling a book and you got to say yeah. certain yeah. things to sell the book. But I guess I, again, semi-consciously make a habit of trying to give you something new that hasn't <laughs> been before, you know, and, and, and yeah. uh, not do the same, not just go through the motions, uh, yes, June, uh, <laughs> you know, and not just give the boilerplate. So, so that, yeah. and which yeah. is also, frankly, makes it fun for one, right? Because it's yeah. an actual yeah. conversation rather than, you know, a, a, a performative version of, you know, your publicist's talking points. Yeah, totally. June, what a wonderful and forthcoming conversation. I, I was so interested in it. Uh, and, and in particularly, okay, maybe this is autobiographical or something, <laughs> but <laughs> because it struck me as in line with my own experience, but Kurt thinking of his book as a kind of self-guided master's degree on a subject he's curious about. What did you make of that? I so related to that too. Um, when he said that, I almost kind of had to interrupt him to say, oh, I know just what you mean, even though I have never written a book. But I love researching, uh, much more than writing, I have to say. And I was reminded of a conversation I had with a friend who's a very successful and very content person, but she told me that she had never been happier than when she was doing the research for a PhD. And I mean, yeah, of course, what else would you expect? That feeling of like following ideas down a series of very deep rabbit holes, like that's the most exciting thing ever. And it's very addictive. I have to say, too, it's really clear that Kurt really did follow the ideas rather than taking a path that he mapped out beforehand. I've read other books, you know, about these ideas that's supposed to bring all the kind of concepts of the 20th century together. But Evil Geniuses really does bring things together in a fresh way. And I think it's because he didn't come in with a preconceived notion and it really comes through. Right. And it seems to me that that's one of the advantages of being, as he says, a generalist, not a specialist. You know a bunch of different things. You can begin to sort of synthesize them, draw the connections between them, and you can enter some subject matters anyway with with maybe fewer preconceived notions. I... I'm a generalist. I'm Mm going to guess that you define yourself as a generalist as well. And I have to admit, as wonderful as it is being me, uh, (laughs) sometimes I am just incredibly envious of specialists. I think of someone like Chris Malamphy, who hosts Hip Parade and knows everything about popular music. You know, the business of it, the artists, their careers, where things charted, why something is a hit, what made it famous. You know, and he brings all of that together when he writes or does his podcast and every time i just think my god 
what would it be like to have such command over a subject not pop music necessarily just anything really but it's just not who i am do you have a similar envy is the grass always greener i think the grass is always greener is the key there because absolutely i love just like having that feeling of wandering and like anything could be my next focus and there are a couple of areas where I feel like I do have a deep command and I, I could pass myself off as a specialist. The American dental system is one. And I will take every possible opportunity to bore people about that topic. And sometimes I have to say, be careful now. If you ask me one more question, you will never get out of this alive. But Chris Malamphy is a great example of that really rare breed, which is someone who is a true expert, knows everything, has unrivaled ponds of knowledge but he's never, ever a bore about it. It's just someone who's super into something and just wants to tell you about it. But failing that particular way of being generalist all the way. <laughs> and also, you know, because we're both fans of Spy, I have to mm-hmm. circle back to it for a second. Mm-hmm. You asked Kurt if he felt that magazine could exist today. Yeah. And, and he yeah. mentioned that they were very lucky to have made that magazine when they did. But, but yeah. one of the constraints you talked about today is that, you know, we, we've renegotiated a bunch of norms about what is and is not acceptable. What's mm-hmm. considered too mean, who you can be mean about. Could you be mean about Andrea Dworkin in a magazine yeah. today, yeah. et cetera, and so forth. And I was wondering what you think in answer to your own question. Could it exist today? What What would it look like? Where is the space for funny and mean uh, 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 in the way that Spy did it. You know, it's funny. When I asked that question, I kind of thought it couldn't. But his answer actually made me reconsider. Um, You know, as he said, it was very specifically of its time. There was so much less competition for eyeballs, for attention. I don't think that today one media institution could be as influential. We're in an atomized world now where we think about articles rather than magazines. But I definitely think that the tone of Spy is still with us. There's a lot of it on Twitter and in Slate and in other places on the Internet. And, you know, the establishment institutions like the New York Times have a lot more of that tone nowadays than possibly could have existed in the late 1980s. And yes, some of the people that Spy used to make fun of would now be off limits And it would definitely not be acceptable for a bunch of upper middle class white guys to poke fun at anyone they wanted to. But there's still no shortage of rich, powerful jerks to laugh at. Am I being too much of a Pollyanna, do you think? No, I don't think so at all. I mean, I I think part of what you're pointing out there is that the tone of that magazine did actually have a pretty outsized influence and that we see it all over the place. Uh, You know, I mentioned earlier, you see it in Gawker, you see it in The Baffler, you see it in the Deadspin, which now doesn't really exist anymore. Mm. Uh, That sense of humor, I think, also permeated the all and, you know, the writers from there, um, some of whom have become writers for Slate or The Times or other places, you know, have, have carried that on. At the same time, there is this idea of are you punching up or are yes, you punching yes, down, yes. which isn't a, a rule because there aren't it's not like there's a Congress for comedy that decides <laughs> what you can and can't do. Yeah. But there's a lot more attention paid to like what is the relative social status of the mm-hmm. person making the joke and the target mm-hmm. of the joke. And if those are out of balance, are they out of balance in the, the correct or the incorrect way? Yeah. So I do think that would be a more difficult thing to to negotiate. 
uh, you know, I just don't think that <laughs> cancel culture is run amok and now we can't say things so much as just yeah. the norms are being renegotiated as they always are, but it's happening in this extremely public way instead of in editorial meetings. Yes, absolutely. Fully agree. Well, on that note of agreement, that's our show for this week. Listeners, if you've enjoyed this show, please consider signing up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, extra content on this and other episodes of Working, and you'll be supporting the work that we do right here. It's only $35 for the first year, and you can get a free two-week trial now at slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Kurt Anderson for being our guest this week. Huge thanks, as always, to our producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week for a conversation between Ruman Alam and art curator and writer Kimberly Drew. Until then, get back get- to work. Sorry, I don't know why I just jumped on your line then. Sorry, say your no, last line. You, you can jump on my lines, it's fine. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.